Welcome, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We gather like this every weekend to talk to really interesting people. We get on the air because of Alan Dempsey. Alan Dempsey wears many hats here, uh, but this hat he's wearing is that, that of engineer. And uh, Andrew Herdliska does the producing. And in this first segment, Kristen Kobus DeMay is our guest. She is in Grand Rapids, Michigan, professor of history at Calvin University, author of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Boy, we've got an interesting chat ahead, Kristen. I'm so glad you can join me. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, first of all, uh, I need the background on this book. How did this come about? How did this title come about? Uh, fill us in. Sure. I mean, the the idea for the book actually started more than 15 years ago. Uh, I was teaching a class at Calvin, and I just finished a lecture on Teddy Roosevelt. And I was showing my students how Teddy Roosevelt was this great example of how masculinity worked in history. That masculinity, the idea of what it was to be a man, was not just a personal thing, but it was linked to the ideas of American power and empire. It was linked to war, to religion, and it was this great little lecture, I thought. And afterwards, a couple of students came up to me and said, Professor DeMay, there's this book you really need to read. And that book was Wild at Heart by John Aldridge. This is in the early 2000s. And the book was a bestseller. Every college guy was reading it at a Christian college, and um, I, I opened the book and I saw immediately what they were talking about. He opens his book with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt and goes on to sketch this very militant, militaristic conception of what it meant to be a Christian man. Um, at the time, it was the early years of the Iraq War. We saw all this um, survey data that evangelicals were far more likely than other Americans to support that war, war in general, to condone the use of torture. So I started to wonder how this all fit together. Um, I actually ended up setting the project aside for a time. Um, other things uh, came came into um, um, uh, kind of got in the way. And then at a certain point in the fall of uh, uh, 2016, actually, I looked at what's happening around me and I thought I need to look into this again. And that really brought us to the um uh, to this book. Uh, the title, Jesus and John Wayne, reflects the fact that when many Christians write about Christian masculinity, they don't actually uh, use the Bible all that much. Instead, they look to Hollywood heroes, to Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, and to uh, uh, to John Wayne. He kept popping up in ways that surprised me. Um, and so I, I began to explore how these kind of secular, popular models of masculinity had reshaped not just Christian ideas of manhood, but ultimately Christianity itself. Your first chapter is called Saddling Up. What does that mean? Oh, that, that's a reference, obviously, to John Wayne and to kind of just getting things going, but also to uh, the role of this kind of cowboy ideal in uh, shaping American conceptions of, quote-unquote, traditional masculinity uh, to um, ideas of uh, kind of individualism, to this rugged masculinity, to the, you know, the man on the horse, the man who uh, can bring order to um, savagery, to, um, can, can use violence to achieve that order, this kind of heroic ideal 
of American masculinity, um, which uh, becomes conflated with ultimately with, with Christian masculinity. And so the first chapter of the book really just traces from the 19th century up to the 1940s, uh, kind of changing conceptions of masculinity. Um, but it does so in part to show that there's actually a lot of change over time. Uh, that you could find, for example, in the 19th century, Christians who defined masculinity as a model of gentlemanly restraint, not this rugged warrior type. Uh, you could find surprising things in the early 20th century. So with the First World War, uh, it was actually liberal Protestants who were as likely or more likely to embrace militarism and this muscular Christianity. Um, and so the, the, the kind of a way things are now uh, it's not inevitable, and uh, it reflects a lot of um, kind of historical change, uh, and that's something that I thought was important. Before we really dive in and understand uh, these things today, we need to understand where they came from. John Wayne will save your—he'll um, <clears throat> save you. Uh, uh, why, why, uh, tell me this, Kristen. Why, to this day, are we so fascinated with John Wayne— Mm. So this is where we have to pick up with the Cold War, and and that's really when when these themes come together. So in Cold War America, uh, we see um, uh, first of all this is in the 1940s, 1950s. This is a time when conservative evangelicals were trying to regroup. Um, they felt that they had kind of lost their power, lost their influence after the Scopes trial, losing control of major denominations. And they didn't disappear. They were actually really um, entrepreneurial, building up Bible schools and organizations, or not as many organizations, but kind of local, staying local. But by the 1940s, they thought, we're doing this great work, um, but we can do it much more powerfully and effectively if we band together. So what we need are national organizations. We need radio, Christian radio, and, and then eventually television. We need magazines. And, you know, we have all this you know, truth to offer the nation. Um, and so, so we need to band together. So, so that's going on. And we also have, in terms of foreign policy, the beginnings of the Cold War by the late 40s. And that's when we see um, anti-communism really come to the center of American identity, but American evangelical identity as well, because communism was a threat. It was, it was anti-God, it was anti-family, and it was anti-American. And so that's when we have this, this conception um, among evangelicals, among many Americans, that to defend God and country required toughness, required violence, required a, a military response, because the threat was military, but the threat was also to the things that we held most dear. And, and that's the time when we really see this emphasis on Christian masculinity and American masculinity as being one that needs to be a protector, a provider, yes, but really a, a protector who can use violence, use his God-given testosterone-fueled aggression to defend faith, family, and nation. And again, John Wayne comes to represent on screen this idealized good guy with a gun. Uh, let's move to the next topic, God's gift to man. That's your third topic and and uh, uh, please explain it, Kristen. So, I mean, if you talk about Christian masculinity, you also have to keep an eye on Christian femininity uh, because they really do fit together. And in evangelicals in, in post-war America, uh, they, they really emphasize gender difference 
So men and women are completely different. They're opposite. Men need to be these strong and rugged protectors. And we need to raise our boys to be strong men, teach them to use firearms and, and those sorts of things. But, but women, very different. Women are to be um, protected. They are vulnerable. They are weak. They are to be submissive to masculine authority. And they are to nurture and to support men's uh, needs, um, to support men in their leadership. Uh, and again, through submission. And so what I did is I, I looked at a lot of evangelical um, books on femininity and also evangelical sex manuals. Uh, it's a thing. It has been a thing for a very long time. And came to see that this idea of female submission to masculine authority was both kind of social, it was in terms of family authority, church authority, but it also had sexual components. And so it was a woman's responsibility to um, protect man's virtue. A man was aggressive. He's filled with lust the way God made him. Women then had to stay very modest if they were not married. And if they were married, they needed to fulfill their husband's sexual needs and, uh, you know, whatever those needs might be. And what I saw in this literature on sexuality, uh, again, these were very popular books selling hundreds of thousands of copies. I saw in some ways the roots of uh, the patterns that would come to fruition in terms of the Me Too, Church Too movement, uh, sexual abuse and abuses of power within Christian organizations and families. My guest from Grand Rapids, Michigan and Calvin University, Kristen Kobus to me. We've got more with Kristen talking about her book, Jesus and John Wayne, right after these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. On the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Stay with us. You're back with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And so is Kristen Kobus Demi, author of Jesus and John Wayne. Kristen, we have moved to topic number four. It's called Discipline and Command. What are you writing here? So in this chapter, I uh, start looking at the um, a couple of, of important figures in uh, the history of American evangelicalism, post-war evangelicalism, and this chapter focuses in particular on uh, James Dobson and on Bill Gothard. And uh, this was a, a chapter that um, I think kind of reflects one of the themes in the book, and that was uh, always trying to figure out within American evangelicalism the relationship between uh, the margins, the extreme, the fringes, and the mainstream. Uh, because when you when you when you're looking at when you're hearing evangelical leaders, or you know how the media tends to cover evangelicals, there's always some preacher saying something really, uh, you know, alarming or disturbing, and and the media loves to follow those folks. Um, so for me, I was I was trying to figure out what is the relationship, who's actually fringe, and who's who's at the center. And so in this chapter, I look at um, Bill Gothard, a figure. Um, who is by by any measure um, pretty fringe, pretty marginal, or at least I thought so. Um, but whenever I talked with evangelicals around this topic, I would hear so many people say, "You're going to talk about Bill Gothard, right?" And Bill Gothard um, really had this this um, deep influence, but really just beneath the surface. And he um, he promoted very kind of authoritarian teachings of uh, you know God ordained social hierarchies. 
And these are patriarchal hierarchies. And so um, absolute submission, children to parents, wives to husbands, husbands to pastors, um, and um, everybody to God-appointed government authorities. So this very um, clear chain of command, as he called it. Uh, and, and he promoted that through all these workshops and through um, workbooks and reached millions of American evangelicals, but really stayed um, kind of beneath the surface. So a lot of people have never heard of him if you weren't inside these circles. And then I pair him with uh, James Dobson. And James Dobson, of course, uh, wrote Dare to Discipline and became this household name, founded Focus on the Family. And he wrote a lot about the importance of authority, of discipline. And uh, what I did is by comparing these ideas, Gothard, still fringe, uh, Dobson, pretty mainstream, uh, I think, um, indisputably, but many of their ideas actually reinforced each other. And so that's what I explore in that chapter, how both the fringe and the mainstream were kind of echoing each other when it came to patriarchal authority and um, hierarchical order. Next topic for you, Kristen, slaves and soldiers. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, well, well, here I could just kind of um, am walking us through the, uh, the history of, of um, the rise of the religious right. And so uh, we have uh, figures like Tim LaHaye, uh, who you know, was an important writer in terms of fiction and nonfiction, also wrote a best-selling sex manual, uh, he and his wife. Uh, I look at figures like um, Jerry Falwell as well, and look at how these ideas of patriarchal authority and uh, militancy and also the embrace of militarism was really at the heart of the political mobilization of the religious right. And so I spent some time looking at Falwell's Thomas Road Baptist Church and look at how the kind of military rhetoric pervaded uh, his his understanding of Christianity at the time and how he played a central role in, in really kind of keeping that at the center of not just um, the politics, but really the cultural orientation of conservative evangelicalism at this really important time in the late 70s and into the early 80s. Uh, I want you to move on to the next topic, going for the jugular. What does that mean? What's that about? Uh, this is starting to look at the history of the Southern Baptist Convention and looking at some of the um, tactics that uh, were used within that uh, network. Uh, going for the jugular is a quote uh, that really describes the, the uh, at, some, at sometimes ruthless tactics that conservatives within the Southern Baptist Convention used uh, in order to uh, take control. Uh, so whether it's the conservative takeover, what liberals call it, the conservative <laughs> resurgence, uh, which is how they'd like to call it, uh, this, this kind of um, using uh, rather ruthless means uh, to seize control of the denomination in order, in their minds, to purify it and uh, to pursue um, kind of godliness and righteousness through the organization. Um, but I pair it, interestingly, with... Uh, uh, Oliver North, actually, and uh, and that leads into the next chapter as well, the role that Oliver North plays in American politics during this time and this kind of how their stories intertwine, both with the conservative resurgence within the SBC 
and then what's happening on the national stage with Oliver North and the Reagan administration. Well, why don't we just go to that topic, the greatest American hero. Uh, tell us more. Yeah, I became rather obsessed with Oliver North in my research for this book. Uh, when I was growing up, I, I was um, just in probably grade school at the time. I remember being really confused by Oliver North because in the the kind of news, you know, time and Newsweek, I would read about Oliver North and he was a traitor and he was on trial and you know, all these bad things. And then I would kind of hear how he was talked about in my conservative Christian communities. And in those circles, he was a hero. And I, I never really resolved that at the time. I just assumed some things were too complicated. Um, and so to write this book, it was really fun to explore that history. And, and what I learned was that, uh, you know, uh, Oliver North's um, heroism, his military heroism, his recklessness even, was precisely what many evangelicals loved about him. He was willing to break the rules as necessary in order to do God's work. And that's what they thought he was doing. And he was loyal to his true commander, both uh, Ronald Reagan, but also the highest commander to God. And uh, they admired him for that. And he became this almost cult figure within conservative evangelical circles. They absolutely loved him. So after he kind of disappeared from the national spotlight, uh, he, he maintained this, this heroic role within conservative evangelicalism, even up to uh, the present or, or very recently. So, so he's this figure that I think it's important to understand why they loved him so much. They were really drawn to the military. They were drawn to this rugged, reckless masculinity. And um, I think in many ways, their um, adoration of Oliver North prefigured some of the reasons that many conservative evangelicals have also been drawn to Donald Trump today. My guest from Grand Rapids, Michigan, Kristen Kobus Demi, professor of history at Calvin University. We're talking about her book, Jesus and John Wayne. The topic is number eight, War for the Soul. Uh, what are you writing here? Uh, this is kind of the, the, the next step in this history, looking, moving from the 80s to the 90s and transitioning from the Reagan administration, this kind of high point in terms of the power of the religious right, uh, to the 1990s when it is, uh, things aren't looking so good. With, with Bill Clinton as president, uh, most conservative evangelicals did not uh, like uh, Clinton, to say the least. Uh, they did not like his wife, uh, what she stood for. Um, here we had you know, in the president, a draft dodger, um, and evangelicals had increasingly come to embrace the military, uh, a marijuana smoker. He was kind of a child of the 60s in all the bad ways, and uh, he seemed to symbolize this rejection of authority, the kind of things that, you know, Dobson had been writing about. Uh, he was a liberal. He was a Democrat. Even though he was a Southern Baptist, he wasn't the right kind. Um, and then Hillary, of course, was a feminist. Uh, she was a uh, women's rights activists, global women's rights activists, and all of those things were, were kind of strikes against her. But I think what's really interesting in this chapter is looking at evangelical responses to uh, the um, Monica Lewinsky scandal in the 1990s and also to Clarence Thomas uh, nomination process. And here's where we have a lot of evangelicals kind of going on record um, and you can see how, how partisan loyalties really do shape 
what kind of sexual abuses they were willing to condemn and what sorts of um, improprieties, immoralities uh, they would end up being okay with. What is your chapter Tender Warriors about? Ah, so this is where we're getting into kind of more recent memory. Uh, Tender Warriors is about the Promise Keepers movement. Mm. It's about the 1990s. And this is one of my favorite chapters to write because I think it's full of a lot of surprises. Um, In the 1990s, uh, the Cold War had just come to an end. And the ideas of of, uh, masculinity, a foreign policy, had been so deeply shaped by Cold War politics that when the Cold War came to an end, it was really a time of confusion. Confusion is a word that pops up over and over again in evangelical sermons and writings in the 1990s. Uh, what should Christian politics be? Some explored kind of um, alleviating global poverty, um, attention to the global persecution of Christians. What should a Christian man be? Um, to many, it seemed like this old kind of rugged masculinity model uh, was out of date now. Uh, you know, times had changed. And so um, we see the evangelical men's movement emerge, the promise, promise keepers movement emerge, and millions of men gathered together to ask these questions. What does it mean to be a Christian man? And the answers were actually really diverse. Um, Some people within the movement, writers within the movement, really presented a much more egalitarian model of gender relations and masculinity. Um, Some still offered the, the harsher patriarchal teachings, but the most popular motif was kind of um, splitting the difference, and that was this idea of the tender warrior. And um, Promise Keepers literature is filled with this language of tender warriors. You you need to be a warrior, but you need tenderness, gentleness. They promoted what they called a soft patriarchy. So yes, patriarchy leadership, but kinder, gentler. And so this really characterizes the the, the, the 1990s. It's a time of, of kind of confusion, lots of possibilities. At that moment, it wasn't at all clear uh, which direction things were going to take. In fact, if I um, would have had to predict back in the 1990s, I would have predicted that it would have continued um, probably in this kinder, softer, gentler direction. Um, but that is, in fact, not what happened. Now, Kristen, we move to no more Christian nice guy. What's up? What's up? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So this is um, by the late 1990s already we saw uh, kind of the pendulum swing. We saw a lot of men starting to say things had gone too far. Uh, Ideals of masculinity were too soft, too kind, too gentle. We need to man up. We need to to reassert our masculine strength. Promise Keepers rallies had gotten too emotional. Um, There was a backlash against the movement for racial reconciliation within uh, the movement. And so you see the pendulum swinging back already in the late 1990s towards a more rugged, militant, and militaristic conception of masculinity. And so there are three books that appear in the opening months of 2001. One of those is John Aldridge's Wild at Heart. This is the the book that first alerted me to this this entire topic. Uh, Another is James Dobson's Bringing Up Boys and also Doug Wilson's Future Men. All three of those books promoted uh, a return to a much more kind of rugged, testosterone-fueled masculinity. And um, those books were all on the shelves when terrorists struck the United States uh, on September 11, 2001. 
And that event, that moment, really amplified this um, uh, this this return to militancy, um, because John Eldridge wrote that, you know, God is warrior God, and every man is made in his image. Every man needs a battle to fight. And that battle was no longer metaphorical, right? We had this this very real danger, this very real battle to fight. And and so you, this, again, was a time when I, I started to understand this this militancy and militarism within American evangelical communities was not just metaphorical. It was uh, very much, you know, it could be seen in terms of uh, their foreign policy, in terms of what, what policies they promoted, in terms of how they voted. And, um, and so in the early 2000s, we just see the proliferation of books and sermons uh, really praising an increasingly militant, militarist, militaristic conception of faithful Christian masculinity. Kristen Cobus me has been our guest uh, talking about her fascinating book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. It's quite a read. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in beautiful Orlando, Florida. We'll be right back. Kristen Cobus Demi was our guest in that first segment uh, from uh, Calvin College, talking about her book, Jesus and John Wayne. Quite a read. Uh, Steve McKinnon uh, has put a book together with Scott Hildreth. Uh, they're at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. The book, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out, Evangelism, The Way You Were Born to Do It. Steve, thanks for jumping in here. I'm looking forward to talking to you. It's great to be with you today. Looking forward to the conversation. Why was this book important to write? It's important uh, for for me because so many Christians that I encounter know that uh, they, they should tell their friends and co-workers and neighbors about Jesus. They, they recognize the importance of helping them hear the gospel and know the gospel, but there are hindrances uh, and barriers to them sharing the gospel that keep them from doing what they really want to do and, and believe that they should do. Some 85% of people who are Christian, evangelical Christian, claim that they believe in the Great Commission and sharing the gospel with people, but very few people actually do it in practice. Your first chapter is called Evangelism Doesn't Have to Be Uncomfortable. Uh, Tell us more. Yeah, so um, I I feel like, or we feel like, one of the reasons that people um, don't share the gospel is because there's there's an element of discomfort that comes with talking to somebody about religious matters. Um, But there are also some practical problems that that sometimes Christians encounter. Um, They think that sharing Jesus requires that they be a a good salesperson. Maybe they're an introvert. Uh, They they, they don't feel like they can really uh, be persuasive to someone and and sell them on something, and they've been led to believe that evangelism is only presentational and not conversational. And so it becomes uncomfortable. They're, They're good with conversations, not so good with presentations. Or they feel like they have to be a theologian that has all the answers. They're worried that if they start talking with someone about Jesus, uh, they may get asked a question they don't know the answer to. They may screw things up, and uh, they, they don't want that to happen. 
And uh, we believe that that evangelism doesn't have to be something that gets you out of your comfort zone. Uh, if you're an introverted person and you're you're good with conversations and not presentations, there still is a place for sharing the gospel for you. And what whatever you know about being a Christian was sufficient for you to become a Christian. And so you already have what you need to help other people to, to become a Christian as well. And so there's no need to become uncomfortable with the, the context and the conversation that you may be having with somebody about Jesus. Let's move to topic two. Evangelism is storytelling. Why do you say that? Yeah. You know, Pat, what, what sometimes people uh, are, are, are led to, to believe or what they think is that uh, there are there are there's a, a series of facts that they have to memorize, and then they have to walk through that series of facts to just uh, convince somebody to uh, believe each one of them. And in doing that, that somehow they pull themselves away from the natural order of conversations with people. What, I'm, what I mean by that is when when I talk with someone about my my kids, for example, so I have a I have a son who's a who's a cancer survivor, and when I talk with someone about his struggles with cancer and his survival from cancer, um, it, it's my telling his story. I'm not I'm not trying to convince them of what chromosome translocations are like or what uh, you know chemotherapy is like or immunotherapy is like. I'm, I'm telling them a story so that they can understand that or understand him. And evangelism is the story of what God has done for us in Jesus and how we have come to believe that and to receive that. Um, and so what we do in the book is to help people to understand that they already have a story. And that story is the story of the Bible, what God has done for us, but also their own personal story, their testimony story of how it is that they came to faith in Jesus as well. And we want people to see evangelism as telling that story and retelling that story, as opposed to just like walking through a biology textbook where you come up with some facts and you try to convince someone of the truthfulness of those facts. Evangelism really is saying, this is what the Bible teaches us God has done, and this is what God has done in my life. Steve McKinnon is our guest. The book, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. All right, Steve, topic number three. You tell us evangelism is better when it's a conversation. Why is that? Well, we, uh, in, in our experience, in my experience in, in 30 years of ministry, I found that both the, the speaker and the receiver in a, a presentation of the gospel uh, prefers to have give and take and dialogue than just to sit, to listen to someone give them, um, you know, a, a sales pitch or a presentation that they that they can respond to. So it's, first of all, it's better for the listener. So someone who's not a Christian um, needs more than just a long set of facts. That, that person needs to understand the, the story of the gospel, the message of God, God's work in Christ, but it's also conversational evangelism is better than presentational evangelism for the one who's doing the evangelizing. Uh, we're, we're not all gifted as Billy Graham, where we can stand in front of thousands or tens of thousands or millions of people and share the gospel with them in a winsome and persuasive way. 
there are those that got calls to to do that, and that he those people that he's a gift that he is gifted to do that. But not all of us are gifted in that way. And so for those who aren't, to be in a conversation with someone is much more comfortable and comforting, both for the the speaker, the evangelist, and for the the receiver, the person who's not a Christian. It also enables conversations do enables uh, us to. Uh, answer questions and to explain why it is that we believe the way that we do and why it is that these things are important to us. Also, real life is lived out in conversations with other people. You know, we don't go to PTA meetings where we just stand up and start presenting things to the four people around us. We have conversations with them, and we go to coffee shops. We spend time at, at our, our kids' ball games having conversations with the parents that are around us or with our friends when we're hanging out at dinner. And that, because that's just the normal way that people live their lives, Pat, we feel like evangelism can be done best when, when it fits in the normal way in, in which we live. We're trying to help people um, develop a lifestyle of evangelism. Now, not, not so much lifestyle evangelism where we say, look at my life and um, you know, be convinced of the gospel from that, but a lifestyle of evangelism. So as I'm going a, a, about my, my average everyday life, I'm encountering coworkers and neighbors, the people I'm buying my coffee from, the, the people at the supermarket. And these are people that I'm building relationships with, other parents that, that, that have kids that play sports or at the ballet with my, my kids. And I want to be able to have conversations with them about Jesus in the same way I would have a conversation with them about any other host of important things that go on in my life. Okay, now, Steve, I want you to move to evangelism. Evangelism is contextual. Uh, explain that one to us. What's that mean? Yeah, so um, think about it this way. We, we all have a number of contexts that we live in, right? So the city that we live in, the place we grew up at, uh, we've got the hobbies that we engage in. Uh, we've got the, the various places that we that we go on a regular basis. Each of these are contexts in our lives. So, uh, you know, a, a mom, a soccer mom might hang out with her friends as they're at the coffee shop together, they might go shopping with someone. Uh, someone might be at the PTA. Uh, you might like college football or the NBA basketball. And those are those are contexts. So evangelism is best done with the people that we're in those contexts with, because we know them and they know us. Now, presentational evangelism, kind of the, the old school learn, learn a handful of, of facts and, and explain it to them, that may be difficult to do in those contexts, because those people, they know us as we really are. You know, they watch us whenever we get, you know, maybe, maybe a little heated at the referee at a, at a youth basketball game or something. And so they know us in those ways, and if we're just trying to present some facts to them where it's like, almost like a sales pitch, we may be uncomfortable in doing that. But conversations within those contexts can be very beneficial, and they, they can, in fact, be, be persuasive and winsome, and they can help people to, to see how we're just real people as well, and the gospel has changed our lives, and we can explain to them what it, what it means to us to be Christian parents and Christian spouses and Christian workers and employees and employers, and how, it, and, and how the gospel has changed our lives, not only to bring us into right relationship with God, 
but also change our lives to show us how we live our lives as as those who are are, are Christians. And so we want to leverage those contacts where uh, if someone in a, uh, you know, we're tailgating with someone before a college football game, we want to be able in that context to be able to have gospel conversations, to turn normal conversations into gospel conversations. And so evangelism is best done when we when we take the gospel into the various contexts in which we live. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a waffle, Pat. You know, I, I I love waffles, and when you eat a waffle, you have to put syrup in each one of the little waffle squares. You can't just <laughs> pour it on top and let it run everywhere. You know, like a pancake. Um, that's the, your pancakes are the lazy man's breakfast, but but uh, waffles, you got to put syrup in each one of those squares, and those waffle squares are the context of our lives. And so we want we want to be able to take the gospel into each one of those contexts, where it's not just we're Christians at church, but we're Christians at work, and we're Christians with our friends, and we're Christians with our, our neighbors as well. Steve McKinnon is our guest, talking about his book, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. All right, we've arrived at topic number five. Evangelism listens to the needs of others. Right, Steve? Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is something uh, my my co-author and I, Scott Hildreth, um, you know, in, in teaching this for 30 years, we've, we've seen and practicing this, we've seen so often how um, simply being sensitive to what other people are saying can open up doors for sharing the gospel with them. Here's what I mean by it. You know, when, when we're in conversations with our coworkers or our neighbors and our friends, and they bring up, for example, spiritual or religious questions, what, what we're convinced of is that as we're walking along a path, and they're walking along a path, that we encounter people at a place where they're most open to hearing the good news of Jesus. And when they bring up, for example, spiritual or religious things, we feel like that's a, a good opening for the gospel. So if we're listening to their spiritual needs, then we can respond with spiritual answers. A, a second uh, way in which we listen to them is to hear the highs and the lows of their lives. You know, everybody, whether they're Christian or not, they love when their children are born or when their grandkids are born. Um, they, they love when there are successes in their lives. They get a promotion. They, they get married. They have something good that happens. And, and they also all grieve when there's some difficulty in, in their life, a low, a, a loved one dies. They lose a job. Things don't go their way uh, in life. And we want to be sensitive to listen to their needs as it relates to uh, you know, both their successes and their failures, what we, we call in the book their blessings and their brokenness. And if we're listening to their needs with regard to their blessing and their brokenness, then we can respond with gospel answers. And then we also listen when, when people uh, speak about those things that, that have cha- where the gospel has changed our life. And so we, we might be a different kind of a parent or a different kind of employee or a different kind of athlete or a different kind of coach or a, a different kind of person because the gospel has changed something about us. And if we're listening to people's needs when they're talking about challenges they're having in their marriage or challenges that they're having at work or challenges with their kids or, or trying to figure out just how to be the best uh, man or woman or young person that they can be, if we're sensitive in listening to them, then we can 
more quickly turn those conversations to gospel conversations because the gospel offers them hope in the midst of the highs and the lows of their lives. My guest from uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, Steve McKinnion, the book, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. We have another segment with Steve. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. Steve McKinnion is with us from uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, talking about his book, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. We've arrived at topic number six, Steve. Evangelism is an announcement of good news. It really is, Pat, and uh, we, we want to ensure that when we are talking to people about Jesus, that we're presenting the, the truth of uh, his work for us so that we can be reconciled to, to God, so that we can be brought into the story of God's work. Um, that we can find our our ultimate fulfillment in Him. Our lives can be be uh, straight, uh, can be um, directed by this good news. And we want evangelism to be an announcement. First of all, we we, we don't want evangelism to be just a sales pitch, where we're trying to get somebody to do something that we want. There there are, there are plenty of of important ways in which we're trying to convince somebody to do something. And so we, we develop a sales pitch that may get them to that end. Instead, we want evangelism to be an announcement. We want to be able to tell them, this is what God has done. This is good news and what God has done for you, that, that you can receive this uh, as well. And, and we want them to recognize this really is good news. It's not just news. It, it, it's good news. So we're not just telling them something that happened on the other side of the world or something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that God has done 2,000 years ago so that you can today, where you are, benefit from that, from that good and great work that he's done. So we, we want it to be both an announcement and an announcement of good news. We're not just announcing what, what someone has done without you in mind. This is something that God has done for you and for your good, um, where he's extending his love and his grace and his mercy and his offer to you. And so we want to be announcing it in that way. We don't, we don't want to think of evangelism as something other than describing to them the good news of God's work that's offered to them. Let's move to the next topic, Steve. Evangelism is best in relationships. Uh, 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 expand on that, please. Yeah, so um, we, we've all we've all seen, known, and many of us have done uh, evangelism where we talk to someone that we don't know, um, and and it's important for us. Maybe we're on an airplane, or uh, you know, we we end up running into someone that we've never met before, and questions come up about spiritual matters or needs, and we we share uh, the good news of Jesus. Uh, with them. But those are few and far between, those instances of being able to share the gospel with with people that we don't know, few and far between opportunities. And it's also better, um, we believe, if we're working diligently to share the gospel with people that we already know. So why why is it better, evangelism better in relationships? 
because people can, over time, have their questions answered. They can observe the work of the gospel in our own lives. The example we use, Pat, is like like playing ping pong with a kid. So when my children were young, they're all grown now, but when they were young, we played ping pong together. And and I was always better than than they were when they were just little kids at, at ping pong. And I could easily just slam the ball down, and I could win, um, and and you know beat them in the game of, of ping pong. But the goal wasn't that I would I would defeat my my little daughter or my little son uh, in in ping pong. The goal was to play the game together. And so I would hit the the ball over to to the other side, and they would hit it back, and then I would hit it back to them, and they would hit it back. And it's like playing tennis where you're volleying back and forth as opposed to, to competing to try to, to try to win. And evangelism, because if it's done in relationships, then it's not about winning. The, the goal is not to win the other person. It's to win them over to the good news of Jesus. And so sometimes what happens with our evangelism is, uh, you know, we, we hit the ball over and say, you should be a Christian. And they write back and say, I don't want to be a Christian. And, and we say, well, Jesus died for you. And they, write, they, they hit back and say, well, I don't believe that. And we slam the ball down and say, well, you're wrong, and I'm right. And we may feel good about that. See, I, I, I won because I'm, I'm right, you're wrong, but that's not evangelism. And that person is never want to, going to want to play with you again. If I just always slam the ball in my, in my kid's face when we played ping pong when they were young, they would never have wanted to play again. Instead, the relationship continues. And so evangelism is more like that relationship. We hit the ball over. This is what God has done. And they hit it back and say, well, I don't believe that. And we hit back and say, well, it doesn't matter if you believe it. It's still what's happened. And here's why he did it. And they write back and say, well, or hit back and say, well, well, why would he have done this for me? Or why did he have to die? Or why was, are, are my sins important? Why do they need to be forgiven? And now that relationship, Pat, where we're going back and forth with someone to help them to grasp the good news of the gospel is a, is a much better way to help people to, to learn about Jesus than to simply scatter some message to people that we don't know and we have no relationship with. Topic number eight, Steve, evangelism happens on purpose. Uh, expand on that, please. Yeah, you know, if, if we're not intentional about having gospel conversations, then we're not going to be we're not going to be number one prepared to have gospel conversations. If, if we haven't said, I'm going to be intentional when when the opportunity presents itself, I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to share Jesus with with people. Now it, it puts me in a place I'm prepared to do that. I I know what my story is. And I know what the story of the of the gospel is. At the end, end of the book, we have kind of an eight-week challenge that's in there that's about learning how to be prepared to share Jesus. And people tend to be more confident than when they're prepared to do something. So as, as, as a coach, for example, I'm, I'm helping kids to be prepared to do a, a job so that they can be confident in, in doing that. Same thing happens with evangelism. If I'm going to be doing this on purpose— then I'm going to prepare myself to go and do that. The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to be then listening. I'm going to be attentive to other people like we talked about earlier is I'm going to have my antennae up so that I can be listening for those those opportunities that I can help somebody else by announcing uh, the, the gospel to them. And then the third thing it's going to do is it's going to cause me to have some spiritual sensitivity in my life. 
That is, if I if I know that I'm intending to share the gospel with other people today or tomorrow as, as opportunities present themselves, then I'm going to have some, some spiritual sensitivity, not just I'm going to go hang out with this person, we're going to have coffee, and we're going to talk about the playoffs. It's I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk to this person about real life, things that really matter as it relates to uh, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be able to now share, gospel, share the gospel with them because I'm intending to do that. I'm developing this lifestyle of evangelism. And it doesn't mean that every conversation has to be a Jesus conversation. Uh, you know, I, I, can, I can talk about what the ballet is like, and I can talk about what, you know, the last concert I went to see was like, and we can, we can talk about sports and hobbies and the books that we're reading and politics and the other things that, that may be important in my life. But with, at the same time, I'm having all of those conversations that are important to me. Jesus is important to me as well. And so now I'm working uh, the, the message of the gospel into these normal conversations that I'm having to help them become gospel conversations. In closing, and we've got about 60 seconds here, Steve, the eight-week challenge you write about means what? What is that? So it's over the course of eight weeks, uh, you, uh, as the reader, who wants to learn to share the gospel without it being an uncomfortable experience that freaks you out, can take some specific steps and some practical steps to learn how to be uh, both more confident and more effective in having gospel conversations with friends, coworkers, neighbors, and family members who don't know Jesus. Well, folks, my guest has been Steve McKinnon, professor of theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. The book, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out, it's an important book. Uh, We will have a wrap-up right after these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're plugged in to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. And uh, the best advice I can give to you is just stay tuned to those stations all day long and your life will be better. Uh, We'll be right back. Well, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In that first segment, we had quite a chat with Kristen Cobus DeMew uh, on her book, Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, and then we moved to Steve McKinnion uh, talking about his latest book, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out, Evangelism, The Way You Were Born to Do It. And speaking of books, I have a new book that has just come out. It's called The Reluctant Leader. And uh, we dive into the topic of why people so often are reluctant to step up and lead when a leadership opportunity is presented to them or urged upon them, and um, and they uh, are reluctant to take it. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this book. Go up to Amazon, a wonderful way to order books. Uh, from all of these folks. Well, we'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. And above all, have a wonderful week ahead.